everyone. You've, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have Steve Stern here joining us. Welcome, Steve. To Thank Living you. Writers. I love I loved the music intro. It, uh, it made me feel very Jewish, despite the fact that I, I'm, I'm not actually Jewish, but I... I did have an operation to become a Jew. Really? Yes. When was when did that happen? When <laughs> when was that? Well, it's it's, it's a pro, an ongoing process. You know, it's cosmetic surgery, and uh, you know, how do I look? Great, great. I'm here to tell you, you're looking you're P- looking fabulous. Pretty Jewish, huh? <laughs> oh yes, yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, yeah. fool you. <laughs> yeah, and that was great music to start out nice. with. I will, I will say thanks now to Alex Belhodge and, and to Brian Delaney for their um, their engineering for standing on the roof and playing the fiddle so well. <laughs> so well, exactly. I know. No, no joke, everyone. I wish we could pack everyone into the studio because Steve was dancing. Um, <laughs> I was even moving around a little bit. So it's great, mm-hmm. great to be, great to be uh, here in America. <laughs> Yeah, but, but or, back, or anywhere. Or back, yeah, here in Ann Arbor. <laughs> and and I should say that, that Steve flew in this morning, right? Steve, you want to tell us, uh, where did you fly in from? Uh, from Brooklyn, New York, and, and so um, you, where I got to the airport uh, three or four hours early, <laughs> just out of sheer anxiety. Uh, well, and, and because um, Steve is in town, um, tomorrow he'll be doing a fiction reading. Uh, um, so tomorrow, Thursday, September 24th at 5 p.m. at UMA, the, the University of Michigan's Museum of Art on State Street at 5 o'clock in the Helmut Stern Auditorium. Steve will be reading. That's and, my uncle's auditorium. <laughs> it is. All in the family. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and what will, do you want to give a little, like what you'll be reading tomorrow or just keep it all? Well, I, I don't think I need to create much suspense about a, a fiction reading, but I, I'll read some new stuff, uh, a, few, a couple of short things, one which is completely frivolous and has no socially redeeming qualities whatsoever, and the other one which is a real uh, bummer. Oh, okay. Yeah. So prepare to be up and down and <laughs> and and all around tomorrow um, at five o'clock. And that's that's the Zell Visiting Writers series at UMA. Okay. Well, um, before we go any further, I'll read your short biography um, on the press release, Steve. Steve Stern is the author of several works of fiction, including the story collections Lazar Malkin Enters Heaven and The Wedding Jester and the novel The Angel of Forgetfulness. His books have received a Pushcart Writer's Choice Award, the Edward Lewis Wallant Award for Jewish American Fiction, and the National Jewish Book Award, and his short fiction has appeared in the Pushcart and O. Henry Prize anthologies. He has been the recipient of a Fulbright and a Guggenheim Fellowship, and is currently a writer-in-residence at Skidmore College. His novel, The Frozen Rabbi, is forthcoming next spring from Algonquin Press. And I should mention the books that we have um, here before us um, kindly sent. uh, Grey Wolf Press sent sent me a copy of The Wedding Jester, Steve. So we've got that short story collection and the novella um, by, by Melville House Publishing, The North of God. Um, really a lovely, like, uh, d- both books, uh, nicely designed in the novella. It looks like you could carry it with, like, what a great they size. Do, and they, they do <laughs> a series, a novella series from Melville House, and they're all in, in, in they're, Pocket sized, and they come in different colors, and they're they're trying to get uh, dispensers <laughs> in airports. So uh, literally, so, like yeah. maybe some like a, like a buy the soda machine. Well, you buy it like a candy bar. You <laughs> right. <know. laughs> well, I think it can work. Yeah, yeah. I think people buy them according to colors. Uh, did you, you can collect them. You can trade them. <laughs> right. Well, now I have I have aqua blue, so yeah. so I'll just have to look out for some more novellas, um, and and Steve, maybe that's a good place for our conversation to begin in some ways because I'd like to fill in a little bit of your your history, your biography, um, uh, but maybe we'll just start with forms because you seem to. Uh, you work in all forms of fiction, the short, the short story, the novella, novels, children's books. Um, I, I wish I could have uh, read a copy of Herschel and the Beast. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a story about a kid who swaps places with an organ grinder's monkey. And uh, 
when I, I saw some editors, many, the story is probably 25 years old. And the, in those days, uh, if a kid becomes a monkey, he had to return to being a child. I think you could probably get away with it. He was a very unhappy child and much happier as a monkey. And, and the editors kept saying, well, we like the story, but he can't stay a monkey. <laughs> and I said, but he's a much happier monkey than he was a boy. That was the truth of things. Yeah. And so, so actually, so the publishers leaned on you a bit to actually change change the end? Well, the, 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 the small press finally published it. But uh, in New York, it was, it was very uh, inappropriate that uh, the boy didn't return to being a boy. So maybe it's time to put out a new edition and just, um, oh, oh, because you did actually resist. And he, yeah, he, yeah. Didn't, he in, didn't return. In the, in the published ed- edition, he remains a monkey. And, uh, and you know, has a, it's a happy ending. Yes. And we would all prefer to be monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> there are certainly some days like that, Steve. Yes, yeah. Um, and and you came to, well, you, you I don't want to, well, let me just ask. Did you oh, come, go ahead. Come, yeah, let me just get, get this off my chest. Yeah. Um, Embarrass me. <laughs> um, well, when I, was, when I was reading about you, it, it seemed like you, you had a path where you were born in Memphis, the son of a grocer. Um, and then you, you say that you took the wayward path of your generation and, and you traveled. You went to London. Um, well, I was an Orthodox hippie <laughs> for years. And what does that mean? Yeah. Like, what, is that like you're out there doing creative things, living I, on the wild side? I wouldn't. I think the creative things, you know, if you can call the writing creative, came later. And, uh, you know, I, it was the 60s. And uh, it really was a sort of a maelstrom of a time. And uh, so whatever path you may have elected, you know, as your own, uh, it could get waylaid and, and ambushed. And uh, I, I felt like I was abducted into this, this sort of whirlwind of uh, the life of my generation for years, which involved a lot of wandering, but also time on a, on a commune in northwest Arkansas, a, you know, a dirt farm, living in teepees, using, you know, three-legged dogs for blankets and that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, living dogs? Oh, sure. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, we didn't use the roadkill. That was for dinner, we'd say. Right. Yeah. Uh, nice nice stew there. Yeah. Um, well, and then and then you went to to London, and you've collecting all these experiences and made your way back to the University of Arkansas. Yeah, well, the, 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 the commune was just down the road from the University of Arkansas. And so I, I heard something about uh, a writing program, and uh, you could actually study to be a writer. You know, this was a, such a strange prospect. Uh, and what time but, was this around? Like, this was some. Um, this was. This is going to turn into a long digression. It never gets back to you know the the, the issue of writing, which is fine. But uh, I oh, it, we'll get there. It was the it was the early to mid seventies, or actually mid to late seventies, uh, in this little hill town of Fayetteville, Arkansas, which was uh, an extraordinary place. It was full of marvelous writers and all kinds of creative people from, you know, characters like Lucinda Williams playing in the bars and uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton, uh, with whom I played volleyball every Sunday. And, you know, they were... Really? Yeah, they were... You're not pulling my leg. No, it was... They were it were was, they any good? Did they do overhand serving? They were, they were <laughs> terrible, but they were moral presences on the volleyball court. Oh, they kept you, they kept and, you honest. Yeah, and, and you know they they were really lovely people in those days, and uh, mm. uh, and may still be for all that. But uh, I wonder how their volleyball is. Well, the volleyball was never that good, but right. they always they always came with lots of fast food for everyone, and and Bill was. Uh, he was a famous eater of fast food even then, and 
when he jumped on the court, which was very seldom, uh, and he didn't get very high, but then he would land and there would be a kind of posterior detonation. <laughs> Uh, can I go to Guantanamo for saying this? I mean, <laughs> no, I don't. Okay. No, I don't think so. Plus, I mean, that that's a long time ago. And long time. Everybody, you know, not many of us have the spectacular volleyball I, skills, right? I, he's not flatulent anymore. No, <laughs> one would hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said you weren't going to talk about stuff like no, that, no, Steve, no, no. before it's, we went on the air. Let's, let's said, get literary. You said, let's get literary. Well, you were getting towards some literary, because I, I can't even think of a more literary singer than Lucinda Williams. And and when you said Fayette, Fayetteville, mm. um, was is that where the university is also located? Yeah. And so that's what was, was that what was drawing the writers she there? Was, to she that? was the daughter of the poet in residence there, uh, Miller Williams. Yes. And, uh, and there were all kinds of writers that have since, you know, like Ellen Gilchrist and Lewis Norton, and you know, C.D. Wright. C.D. Wright was is still one of my best friends, and uh, yeah. And that they were all there at the same time, so right. it was this this. Real... Yeah, there was a, a, an extraordinary energy that none of us, I think, were particularly aware of at the time, but in retrospect. They were some of the best days of my life. Because I, cause that, for that, you were just living like you were living. So it's not as if you were actually thinking, this is, this is a moment. Yeah, but for me, because it had been so many years of, of wanting to write and waiting to write and being involved in, you know, butchering hogs and, and building geodesic domes, it, once I got there, it was really sheer exhilaration. And then there was this community of of strange but uh, extraordinary souls. And uh, so an energy that uh, I don't think I've recovered since in uh, just in, in terms of a place. Not met again yeah. or so. Um, so. So you said that you'd been wanting to write and yet you were slaughtering hogs and otherwise <laughs> preoccupied with the, yeah. um, the business of living. But so An odd job for a Jewish boy, you know. But for a while, we are itinerant hog butcher, in fact. We would hire ourselves out. To <laughs> but you were wanting to write. So when did that strike you? Like, when did those things, did you start keeping, you know, a notebook in your back pocket? Or, or when did those, when did that, well, when did you start knowing you had that compulsion? Well, the compulsion began about, age seven, I think. <laughs> and, the, you know, it, it's, it, it's a long apprenticeship. And, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm only, uh, what, you know, 87 years old now, and I still feel like I haven't even begun to, full, you know, to, to end the apprenticeship. But, uh, you know, it, again, it, it was a sort of a combination of the times. And, uh, and, a reluctance on my part to believe that I could be a writer. I mean, after all, I I came from a family of, you know, my father was a grocer, my mother was not a particularly literate woman, there were no books in the house, uh, very little art, and, you know, it was a southern town where what was valued was sort of physical prowess and money, and, uh, and there wasn't... M- much of anything in the way of reinforcement for somebody who wanted to be a writer, for God's sake. Uh, It was a very strange kind of compulsion, and I didn't know quite where it came from myself. I was afraid to take it seriously. And uh, you, you know, I began, I suppose, the way most people begin, which is when the impulse is too strong to resist. Leaving the hippie commune, I have to tell you, was just as hard as divorce. You know, I've done both. <laughs> yes, but it was time. You knew it was time to take a risk into this other. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it was. It was sort of now or never. You know, you you give yourself, you tease yourself. That, well, I'll write for a year or so, and if nothing happens, then I'll. You know, I'll go back to my job at Sears Roebuck or something, and then you ride for a year or so, and uh, it's too late to turn back. That's right. <laughs> and then you're a decade on, and then another. Um, we're going to take a short break, and then then we'll be back. Today, I'm still looking forward to my job at Sears Roebuck. <laughs> on the horizon. Today on the program, um, Steve Stern, 
Um, I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be right back. You're the one, you're my shining star You're the one I've been waiting for Let's fly away to some foreign country Where nobody knows who we are I wish I had a ship to sail the water I wish I had about a hundred dollars But I just stand with this glass in my hand Feeling like nothing even matters Your words run through me like the blood in my veins I could swear I knew your love Before I knew your name Before I knew your name Every day I miss your smile Back. Welcome back. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today. More or less. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're alive and kicking here in the, in the studio. Mm. <laughs> oh, Steve just rolled his eyes. He <laughs> has a, had a long. Has, it's been a long day. It's been a long day. Yeah, but but then tomorrow you'll be you'll be meeting with students, right? And 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 giving the reading at five o'clock at the at Uma. Five o'clock. Strange yeah. time for a reading. How so? Why? why? It's sort of nap time, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's why often people go to the Hopwood Tea beforehand oh, and have okay. coffee or tea and a little spike. And some. In the yeah, it's true. You can when yeah people aren't always watching. So. <laughs> Well, they might be watching you, Steve, actually. So (laughs) (laughs) So step carefully, my friend. (laughs) Um, But well, well, let's let's talk a little bit about your process, because you said that you resisted um, this, the the calling to write and and for a while or Mm. or the compulsion to write. Um, And there's a. There's a quote by Stephen Milhauser. Um, Most writers need to discipline themselves to go to their desks every day. Oh. Stern needs to discipline himself to stay away from his desk. <laughs> so um, I can't. He's talking behind my back. He's my best friend. <laughs> to the New York Times, no less. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, I think process for most writers is a really uninteresting topic. And uh, what could be more boring than getting up in the morning? feed the cats, make the coffee, go to your desk, you know, and sit there. And also... But yet that's what you do. Well, I love to do it. If if I didn't, there wouldn't be much in this. <laughs> I mean, publishing is always disappointing in some way. And, uh, you know, the... What, what do you mean by that, Steve? Is it... Oh, I, you know, that, that's the topic I, I think I'll stay away from, actually. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, I w- no one wants to hear your sad, you know, story. But I, I, I think that the, the truth about writing is what keeps you writing is obsession. And obsession is an element that unbalances one's life in every area except for the area that the obsession focuses upon. Uh, so, you know, it's it's not something that you choose. Uh, you know, I, I think it might have a kind of romantic appeal from the outside and initially before you actually begin to do it. But doing it regularly becomes 
excuse me, kind of bot- like a bodily function. <laughs> and you get very cranky if uh, you're not doing it, you know, on a routine basis. No, but... Uh, no, it, that's true. I, uh, I like to sit in my room and make up stories. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it's made everything else in life difficult. <laughs> uh, but you try to orchestrate your life so that it revolves around those moments. And, uh, and I've been fairly lucky that I've been able to do that. And that's the most positive statement I've ever made in my life. <laughs> a scoop for living writers. Yeah, September yeah. 23rd, 2009, ladies and gents. I'll take that to the bank. Right? Exactly. <laughs> I won't soon forget it, Steve. Um, well, I was I was wondering, Steve, if... So this, this it is interesting hearing you talk because I had some, of course, I was putting together some imaginary scenario how since um, this particular New York Times article um, by Peter Edidin, um, he... He's 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 focusing on how, kind of talking about how you did resist the writing, but not phrasing it that way, but coming coming to writing later. Yeah, um, yeah, that's an article. <laughs> it's a little a little peculiar because it <laughs> it talks about how uh, here's this guy that uh, is a sort of darling of critics, you know, and yet can't sell any books. And uh, if I'm a stranger coming to an article about a writer like this, I think well. There's probably a good reason why his books don't sell. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe not your favorite headline, I'd imagine, <laughs> for that. That's what Steve's referring to as the, the headline of this particular article. Where, but, but, but it's interesting because it, it says when you returned to Memphis, mm. um, you, you were hired by the Center for Southern Folklore. Um, yeah. back to, so you were back in your hometown. And then it sounds like you, you part of that, that work was to go and talk to people um, uh, th- about their stories mm-hmm. from uh, uh, a, who grew up uh, in in the the, the pinch. The Is pinch. that true? Will you tell us about that a bit? Yeah, that it's a long story, which I'll try to make short. But uh, I how to make it short? I mean, my background is not particularly full of Jewish content. I grew up in a reform synagogue uh, where the rabbi wore ecclesiastical robes and there was a a choir and a choir loft and a pipe organ and uh, it looked for all intents and purposes like a Methodist church, you know. So I was virtually untouched by the tradition. And uh, when I began to write, I, I found myself longing for some kind of tradition. My friends were all Southern writers, and they could plug into Faulkner and Eudora Welty and Flannery O'Connor, and, you know, and I wanted a tradition. And uh, and I, I found myself attaching Jewish names to my characters and uh, wondering why, but, you know, some some desire to hang some sort of ethnicity on them. and uh, But when I returned to Memphis after a lot of years of living on and off in England, and it was in the uh, early 80s, I guess, and uh, I had been teaching as an adjunct in several schools, and uh, I had this banner day when the, the schools called and said, well, enrollment's down, and we really won't be needing your services. And then my agent, who had been shopping around uh couple of books called to say that, well, I'm getting very lukewarm responses for these, and the truth is I'm not all that keen on them myself, you know, and I felt like life had come to a kind of premature end. Now's the time to be an organ grinder's monkey. Yeah, yeah. Well, out of desperation, I looked up an old friend who was running this folklore center in Memphis, and uh, I, you know, I had no relation to folklore. I thought, well, it's a kind of a you know, distant cousin of literature, and you know, so maybe I can find some kind of satisfaction. And uh, she gave me a job uh, uh, trans. Uh, what do you call it when you you listen to oh, tape? Oh, transcribing. Transcribing. Yes. Uh, 
these oral history tapes, and they were oral history tapes of old uh, Beale Street characters, Beale Street being, you know, the legendary uh, main street of black, the black South. And, uh, and it turned out that there were uh, Jews, you know, on this street, the pawnbrokers, and there was this interesting sort of symbiotic relationship between uh, bluesmen, gamblers, you know, and, and the sort of denizens of, of Beale Street and the pawnbrokers. And uh, I got very excited listening to this, and they said, well, you know, he's local, he works cheap, and he's a Jew, you know, so let's make him the ethnic heritage uh, uh, director, and uh, so they gave me a big, you know, tape recorder and sent me out to interview these old survivors of the Beale Street who kept talking about this neighborhood in Memphis called the Pinch, where all these Jews had grown up, and I'd grown up in Memphis and never heard of such a place, and the the place itself was really a blighted downtown street, North Main Street, uh, kind of bridge ramps and uh, vacant lots and uh, really crumbling buildings. And uh, the more I learned, the more the street began to kind of reconstitute itself as it had been in its heyday, you know, before the war, uh, when it was a very vital and thriving uh, Jewish ghetto neighborhood. By like the 1880s, 1890s, up until World War II, was it? Right up until World War II, it had had been an Eastern European Jewish neighborhood, you know, of the kind that you would have found in any city in the country with, you know, the delicatessens, the dry goods stores, the fish markets, you know, the used clothing stores duplicating themselves all up and down the street. And... uh, Frankly, it was a, a kind of a struck down on the road to Damascus moment, and uh, because uh, I really felt like, well, here's a home, you know, here's a home for the stories, uh, and there's a tradition and a culture and a history attached to this place, which is bottomless and endlessly rich, and carries with it a baggage that includes all of the culture and the history and the tradition, et cetera, plus uh, a dimension of pure mystery. And uh, and ritual. Yeah. And so I was hooked, you know. I mean, it, it turned out to be a kind of a homecoming, and I, I began to set stories there. And uh, my first book that I wrote of stories that were all set in the pinch. It was called Laser Malk and Enters Heaven. And the survivors of the neighborhood, which are quite, you know, quite advanced in years, were so pleased at my mythologization of the neighborhood that they sued me for a quarter of a million dollars. <laughs> but it didn't stop me. I continued to write about that place. And, uh, oh, okay. well, I could, I could see. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. That sounds. I mean, that sounds like another banner day in the life of Steve Stern. But, um, but a life it, of pure misadventure. But it, but it, but you were listening to their stories, and part of your work was transcribing them and yeah. keeping and and documenting them. Yeah. But then you 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 fictionalized different elements and and made them your your own. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a. You know, it's a kind of trespassing, and it's a kind of co-opting. And uh, certainly by the time the the stories get distorted through the lens of my, you know, twisted imagination, they don't resemble the authentic place or characters very much. But nevertheless, you know... uh, it's it's a place that a, a lot of people felt very proprietary about, as do I. You know? <laughs> but that, but that that's what makes it fiction. Oh yeah. Let's take a short break, and we'll be back. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T Hetzel. Today on the program, we have Steve Stern with us. We'll be back. <laughs> Up and down the black I'd ask him what the matter was But I know that he 
don't talk And the ladies treat me kindly And they furnish me with tape But deep inside my heart I know I can't escape Can this really be the end to this two-sided mobile with the Memphis blues again? Well, Shakespeare, he's in the alley with his pointed shoes and his bells Speaking to some French girl who says she knows me well Send a message to find out if she's talked. But the post office has been stolen and the mailbox is locked. Oh, mama, can this really be the end to be stuck inside a mobile with the Memphis blues again? Tell me to stay away from the train line She said that all the railroad men Just drink up your blood like wine And I said, oh, I didn't know that Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Let's just sing along. Steve Stern. Actually, Steve was singing along there. I thought we were going to go drop onto air with some of your dulcet tones, Steve. I wish it had happened. (laughs) But Brian was watching us closely. He's too good. He he got us right at the the right moment. Um, Thanks to Brian Delaney for uh, setting this music up. Can I just say that your debutante just knows what you need, but I know what you want. <laughs> yeah, okay. a, a little, a little Bob. I had to get that little. off my chest. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's not hard. It's not hard to find those those lines with Bob Dylan where you they just have to. Yeah, got so many of them. Um, but but Steve, before we took the break, um, we were talking about um the the, the stories that you that you had heard, um. Set set in the pinch, um, the the neighborhood. Um, would you ever? Would, did you ever consider also doing um, like more of a creative nonfiction with that material? Or is how when you're writing, mm-hmm. is it how what's important to you that that also that because um, you said the stories themselves when you were hearing them felt like a transfusion. Mm-hmm. But then, is it important for you to infuse also your imagination? Is that what just naturally starts happening for you? I'm a storyteller, and you know, I'm I'm a narrative freak, and I believe in narrative. I I think that. Uh, our, what does that mean? I believe in narrative. Uh, well, I, and I think our at some very primal level, you know, in the, the DNA itself is a kind of narrative, and you know, that. The, the fact that life has its beginning, middle, and end is where we extract meaning. And you take away that, that narrative aspect of life, and uh, I think you pretty much leave us in a state of absolute existential paralysis. <laughs> Bewilderment, for sure, yeah. yeah. Um, but for the... the the stories. I mean, I have written some nonfiction pieces about the pinch, uh, you know, and and that's satisfying too. But uh, you know, nothing nothing can compare to the kind of alchemical process that happens when you take experience, uh, you know, an authentic experience uh, of a place like the pinch and then try to transform it into to try to give it a mythical structure and uh, and and to confine it to a narrative uh, what you can do without becoming too preachy here but uh, you know is that I mean, the imagination is, is a timeless faculty and that's that's where it exists and uh, if you can take material experience that was confined to a place and time and infuse it 
with the kind of timelessness that an, an imagination can impose on it, then uh, then you're in the process of making myth, and and I think that's what art does. And good storytelling and making something last. Yeah. Because yeah. that would be a quality of making myth, right? Yeah. That it would be... Absolutely. Right. Which is funny because now you've just contradicted something you said when we were off the air. Because <laughs> you said, well, you you know, of course the downside, just to fill everybody in, the downside of writing this very... Make it, reanimating this historic neighborhood from the past mm-hmm. is that you're writing for a, 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 a very specific audience of dead people now. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so what you've just said now, though, com- completely... Well, um, it, there's, com- there's a bit of a paradox in that that world uh, of the pinch really it it has more to do with Eastern Europe and with the shtetl culture which is long gone and which died a very unnatural death uh, you know at the hands of the Nazis although it was moribund even before the Second World War uh, so the audience for reading about that culture, uh, most of them died with it, I think, and uh, you know, it, it's 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 been my fortune on the one hand to be enchanted by a culture, and on the other hand, <laughs> the, the, the handicap is to be enchanted by a culture that's gone from the surface of the earth forever. Uh, and consequently um, has a very limited circle of, of you know, passionate readers. Uh, of course, the idea is, is to make that culture, tradition, history, ritual, uh, and the magic that is, is part of it, um, urgent and contemporary, uh, but that turns out to be a very difficult uh, task. And th- and that's what you've set yourself. Well, I set myself the the task of writing stories, you know, and and, and the hope is is that if you write them well enough, then they'll have the kind of impact that that we're talking about. But uh, I think that. Often when you're starting with material that is so anchored in the past that you're starting at a disadvantage uh, and your audience is almost inevitably limited. so this so, is this in, is me full of self pity. No, well, no, but but yet you 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 are using well words like brio are used to describe you. You know, so but oh, you, I pay people to say great, these things. Great. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay, have to look back and see who's on your 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 payout sheet. Well, but. it's it's funny, you know. I mean, I I I know a bunch of Jewish writers, and uh, you know, and and some who have much more claim to the tradition than I do who were born into it and uh, you know without naming names you know but I have one friend who is in fact raised in a Hasidic household and and has written some fine books about that that culture uh, but uh, it's broken with it not only uh, to become a very secular Jew but also uh, abandoned it in her writing because, uh, for very practical reasons, I think. Uh, but but yet you say uh, you say abandoned. Mm. Yeah, and it's a thing that you know. I mean, I, I I used to teach in Prague in the summer, and uh, which is a glorious city, and I loved it and loved it long before I ever went there. You know, for its associations with Jewish legend and mysticism and also, of course, Franz Kafka. Uh, and I, I was teaching a course, and we called it Golemology, you know, which is uh, based on the stories that were generated by the myth of the golem, which, as you know, is this Jewish Frankenstein. Uh, uh, <laughs> she's gesturing more and more. But <laughs> I, I, I think the golem, it, it, it's funny, you know, because everybody from... 
Michael Chabon to uh, Bruce Chatwin to I mean, there's so many books over re- recent years that uh, you know that, that somehow managed to include a golem and and one of your children's books. Well, Mickey and the Golem. But you know, when I began to read about this stuff. Uh, I'd never heard of the golem, and neither had anybody else, you know. And now it's a, it's a household word. But uh, uh, the, the and there are many versions, but the most famous is uh, the golem that uh, had supposedly been created by um, Rabbi Lowe, uh, who was a 16th century rabbi in the old Prague ghetto, uh, who created this Jewish monster uh, to defend the Jews against these pogroms, uh, these attacks, these accusations of blood libel, which is using, you know, killing Gentile children and using their blood to make matzah, which, as I know, never happened except in my neighborhood in Memphis. Uh, but <laughs> Pardon me. Well, <laughs> Geography <laughs> alert. <laughs> no, well, Hello, Memphis. Uh, but, you know, and, and then the, they're Again, the, the, the stories are uh, are legion, but uh, the golem becomes out of control, and uh, you know the, to to animate him, you write the word for truth uh, on the forehead of this clay man, and uh, to deanimate him or you know render him lifeless, you scratch out the aleph, which is the first letter of Emmet's truth in, in Hebrew, and, and he collapses, and uh, supposedly he has been stored in the attic of the Alt Neuschule, which is the old new synagogue in Prague, and remains there to this day. Is this an example of uh, a Kabbalistic, Kabbalistic lore, then, that what you're saying here, Steve, is that... Yeah, there, you know... Because you're completely animated while you're talking about it, <laughs> Well, too. you... You have to understand that the the Jewish, you know, the Judaism, the version that I got growing up was a very sanitized version, and it looked an awful lot like uh, just your common garden church going. You know, the most of the liturgy had been sort of expunged of Hebrew, and uh, and the lore, uh, and there is an immense, immense amount of supernatural lore in Judaism. Most of it is attached to the mystical dimension. And, and this is the wellspring of your writing. Well, it, it, I, I draw from it uh, a good deal. I, I wrote when I first began to write, I'm all over the map here now, and I, I've started half a dozen stories, and I keep but uh, shifting from one to the other. But when I began writing these stories about the pinch, uh, the very first one I wrote was called Laser Malkin Enters Heaven, and it was about an old man who's just basically too ornery to die. And uh, the angel of death comes and takes him to heaven alive, you know, well, if you won't, if you won't come dead, I'm taking you, you know, as you are, and I thought, oh, I'm very clever, you know, what an interesting idea, and as, you know, doing the research, I was also doing my homework, and I began to, to find these mystical sources, and fables, and legends, and, and whatnot, that I didn't know existed in Judaism, and, and it turns out the tradition is just voluminous, and, and I kept finding stories about uh, Elijah, who ascends to heaven in a fiery chariot, or, uh, Rabbi Eli, who outwits the angel of death and and goes to the you know the, the, to, to paradise alive, or Enoch, uh, who in Genesis, uh, I think there are a couple of lines. Uh, Enoch walked with God, and he was not. That's it. That's all that, that's there. Well, it's very mysterious. And when the Talmudic rabbis come along, they ponder this, and then they hatch an entire literature about Enoch who 
ascends to heaven to become the archangel Metatron, which sounds like some sort of sci-fi character, you know, who sits at God's right hand and is the recording angel, uh, but never dies. And so I realize that there is this tradition, <laughs> tradition, uh, and I thought narrative tradition. Yeah, and you know, you get. I mean, the the sort of cliché response of the writer is, you know, I, I made this up. This is mine, you know. But but for me, I guess because I'd been sort of lonely and yearning for some kind of tradition, it was like Robinson Crusoe finding the footprint, you know. And I thought, oh, I'm not alone, and uh, so. That that was a great catalyst for beginning to to sort of gather these stories and to to use the the sort of uh, elements of folklore and to discover that my God, you know, there are angels, there are demons, there are female succubi, there are wandering souls, uh, there are you know, secret hidden saints. There are this incredible cast of characters in Jewish mythology. That, and and it enchants you, and it won't let you go. And so this is what you work within. It won't let me go. <laughs> We're going to take a short break. <laughs> and, and we won't let Steve Stern go yet. He'll be back with us. We'll take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Steve Stern. Um, we've got his two books in front of us, um, one from Grey Wolf, The Wedding Jester, um, and then also The North of God by Melville House Press. Um, and so these, these, these things you write, Steve, hey, they fall into the literary fiction camp, and that can be kind of I don't know. Forbidding. For, yes. Yeah, because it's not as if you're sitting down there to the at the desk after feeding the cats in the morning saying, you know, let's do something literary. Um, <laughs> right? And and yet you do. And for, you know, for, for better or for worse with, with the, the, the public buying everything, right? No, that we've... <laughs> I, you know, I, I think writers are always the last to find out what they've done because... <laughs> um, most of them, well, I can only speak for myself, but I only wanted to entertain, you know. I and mean, it turns out that, yo, you're writing literary fiction. And and also I— Is it I, because you're doing it so well, you're entertaining so well, or you're, you're the you, voice you, of the characters? You do it so well that nobody will buy your books. <laughs> well, that's going to change. That's right. going to change. I, I, right. the, the living writers, and after that, yes. Uh-huh. Watch the book sales spike, Steve. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I think th- this show alone is probably going to you know, put me on the map. <laughs> my, my imaginary map if anything yeah. but 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 yet it's like not something anything you would trade like you're you're not looking for uh, 
you want to communicate the stories and the ones that have enchanted you and, and you've fictionalized and made made something Well, I new. really want to run away with a circus, but I'm getting a little too arthritic for that. There, there's, there's Florac. Um, <laughs> um, but, but you, you've written this book, The North of God, that that we have here, and, um, and you're writing when people are, when critics and 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 others are are, are talking about you, um, in in the third person, <laughs> um, and they're saying they seldom talk about me in the first person. <laughs> well, they're they're saying that like the charm of your writing, your your facility with language, and your brio, uh, you know, um, you're. They're talking about a cheese. There. Your vigor, your yes, um, but but the your strength of language and 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 storytelling um and and the north of god you you and you're funny as well actually you're funny here you're funny in on the page um and you the north of god uh, you you made the opportunity to talk about the holocaust and uh will you will you tell us about that and this is a novella so it's a longer piece yeah. um yeah well it's it's the only time that i've made a foray into the holocaust and in my writing, and uh, you know that's a very dicey proposition. And my my elders and my betters, who I've listened to all along, have said this: this you don't touch, you know, unless you're a survivor, unless you've had some sort of personal encounter. Then no, then art or fiction or whatever it is, you know, that I do or you do uh, stands to reduce the experience to uh, a symbol and therefore to, to drain it of its immediacy and power. And uh, so it's not something that you choose to write deliberately. I mean, I know I'm making it sound as if, oh, well, the angels or the devil made me do it, you know. And, and no, of course, at some level, it's a choice. But I, I think a lot about storytelling and narrative as we were talking about earlier and and how to find these containers for experience that make some kind of meaning out of experience and and if you want to write about the power of narrative uh, in some ultimate way then to my mind I needed to try to put that power in direct conflict with an experience that art finally cannot subdue and and the holocaust being you know the ultimate example of that uh so i have a character who's trying to overcome circumstance with story and of course fails you know but uh, but the tension is what drives my narrative and and it's a thing that you can have in fiction and you can have an art uh, which is that a form can succeed where experience doesn't and in a way that's a kind of balancing act that is ultimately I think redemptive I say that very in a very qualified way though uh, and you know, I, again, I mean, I had always kind of sided with with the writers that said, this is not your material to, to exploit. But I think that for me, you know, the Holocaust was uh, a moment that diminished the whole human enterprise and that something was lost in our psychic makeup, our our emotional uh, <sighs> mm. you know stuff forever. And uh, and I think that part of what writers do is to try to retrieve what's lost. Uh, so on one hand, it feels like, again, a kind of trespassing. And on the other hand, an irresistible attempt to redeem what's lost. Um, I hope it doesn't sound too sanctimonious, you know. But uh, no, but it may. It, I think it makes sense, and it's also 
if someone, I think for writers also, if, if you're told that that's not what you can write about, Mm, then you're gonna write about right, it. yeah, um, <laughs> and 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 for reasons because you know there's there is like a truth there or something that's needs needs yeah. to be. I mean, I'm I'm a fairly irreverent guy, but this is something that you know I've always reserved rev- reverence for and have been a good citizen. So how do you write that then, Steve? Like, how do you make that come alive in a way? That maybe these the the other maybe uh, like a survivor could memorialize it in mm. in print like how like because that it seems like y- you would bring something different well, you, to it obviously yeah you do it the way you do anything else in fiction mm-hmm. and and that is you try to immerse yourself in in the experience in a way that makes you responsible for it uh and you know the truth is if you're going to do it you better do it well (laughs) and i you know i don't know that i did uh but i i I do know that you have to try to enter that experience in in a way that feels as nightmarish and you know it has that kind of grotesque authenticity, and uh, and and I confess I'm, I I I feel very sort of reluctant to even talk about you know the effort that's involved, and I I would not willingly write about it again, you know. Uh, you know, Cindy Ozick famously wrote, you know, her story, The Shawl. Uh, it's become a classic about the Holocaust, and it's riveting. It's uh, devastating, uh, and she's one of the the shrillest voices in the camp that says, "You cannot touch this stuff," you know. And if you ask her, she will tell you that pretty much the devil made me do it, you know. And that's, you know, that's what art's about for her and a lot of very authentic artists you know is that uh you write what you're compelled to write Uh, and and that's what art's about for you as well well that's what writing's about you know and if 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 it ever ascends to (laughs) the the height of art then you know I'm, i'm i'm that much happier but uh but it's about but, the making. Yeah, but back down here on the level of just storytelling, you know. Um, yeah, it's... it's Authenticity is a word that I use a lot. And I... It's... I, I, in, some, in some camps, it's a dubious word, you know, because it can be relative. And, uh, and there are a lot of young writers who are writing about the kinds of things that we've been talking about and, you know, the lore, uh, this, you know, this sort of rediscovery of a mystical component in, in Jewish culture. And, uh, and I have trouble with a lot of them because they're, they're visiting this world. Uh, I call it Yiddishkeit light, you know, it's a, it, it seems a, a sort of Disney version of, you know, shtetl world. It's almost like a theme park mentality. And I'm not going to name names because I'll just sound like sour grapes. But, but I, I think that. Uh, but authenticity is what you're if, after. If you're going to write about this world, you know, then you can't just pick <laughs> the flower. You know, you got to pull up the whole root system. And that's and and be and you're brave enough to do it, Steve Stern. You've, you've, <laughs> and keep going, keep pulling up and planting flowers too, I guess, to balance it out. Yeah, but um, just, all the Dr. Pepper speaking. Yeah, <laughs> so some caffeine coming through. But I thank think... you so much for being on Living Writers today. Well, it was a pleasure. You've been you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Steve Stern has been on the program. He'll be reading tomorrow at UMA. Um, that's Thursday tomorrow at 5 p.m. At the University of Michigan Museum of Art. 
Um, thanks again to Brian Delaney for engineering and for listening wherever you are in Arbor streaming. Until next time, I'm T. Hetzel. It's four in the morning, the end of December I'm writing you now just to see if you're better New York is cold, but I like where I'm living There's music on Clinton Street all through the evening I hear that you're building your little house deep in the desert you're living for nothing now i hope you're keeping some kind of record yes and jane came by with a lock of your hair she said that you gave it to her That night that you planned to go clear Did you ever go clear? Oh, the last time we saw you You looked so much older your famous blue raincoat was torn at the shoulder You'd been to the station to meet every train then You came home with